like to talk tonight about this dear friend and also sometimes enemy that we call our body and uh, probably our closest companion on this Dharma path. And in a way, the mind's relationship to the body is sort of the archetypal relationship on which every other relationship we have in this world. You know, so much of the world, our subjective world is defined by our relationships, the way we relate, the way the mind relates. And if the primary foundational relationship is the way the mind is relating to the body, moment by moment, Well, that tells you a lot about why the world is the way that it is and why our lives are the way that they are. You know, the different patterns that we observe, especially when we're on retreat, patterns of distraction and the patterns of struggling with experience and desperate for some some experience, some pleasant experience, preferably to absorb into. So um, it's just interesting to know, like, it's not so much about, you know, just generally in the Buddhist teachings, it's not so much about what is the truth of the body or what is the right way to relate to the body or to understand the body. It's more about learning in a pragmatic, straightforward way how the relationship to the body, how the mind's way of relating to the body is setting emotion immediately in the moment, stress and feeling burdened, feeling oppressed, and how there are times, how there are moments where the mind is relating to the body in a way that's free of any stress very light, very easy, even beautiful. And how do we become more competent, more awake in this territory of embodiment? This karma, the karmic fruits of whatever was before, you know, the past, it shows up here in the present moment as the karmic fruits of everything that was past. And one of the big things, obviously, that's showing up in this moment is the way the body is in this moment, right? This is the karmic fruit. We could spend a lot of time, we do, spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, why is this happening to me? But the more interesting, more dharmic question is, well, this is showing up, this body, this experience of embodiment, these sensations, things are the way that they are. What way of relating to the body, to the present moment experience of body, sets a motion, a future that is worthy of, you know, living? A future that includes release, as opposed to a more entangled, more oppressive relationship with life. I thought as a way of getting started is to bring to mind, if you can, times when you've come across a body. (laughs) Often it's better to bring to mind a body that wasn't, isn't your body. I remember a time having a conversation with a dear friend of mine. We were, this is a long time ago, we were taking a hike. He's a Dharma friend and we were taking a hike in this place in Minnesota State Park where the um, farmers had the foresight to agree not to cut down some of the trees so that they'd always have firewood. So there's this virgin, mostly oak forest, um, surrounded of course by miles and miles of industrial farming now. But there's, you know, these really mature forests, not that big, but big enough to feel like you're in a different place. So we were hiking and talking about 
a deeper issue with in life. And at one point we got so involved in the conversation, we just stopped and we were talking there for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. And then I forget who did it, but one of us just looked down, I'm not kidding, like two feet away, there was a little fawn, a baby deer just sitting, you know, kneeling or lying down in the grass, which wasn't all that high, you know, maybe 12 inches. So it was pretty obvious once you saw it, but you know, they're, Hide is very freckled, so it they blend in. And I guess I we talked to the park ranger later, and I I didn't know it at the time, but their uh, instinct in a situation like that is to not move, because they're really vulnerable when they move. So the best defense is just to stay still, and it's not uncommon for the mother to leave the fawn for hours at a time to go feed, because it's. Uh, hard on the mother to get enough food and pay attention to the fawn so that this is the sort of what seems to work best. But the interesting thing is once Paul and I saw this fawn sitting there, you know, we could just stand there because the fawn wasn't going to move, you know, just a few feet away and just observing this very innocent and fragile and vulnerable and what seemed to me at the moment very beautiful and, and powerful in a, in a funny sort of way. Um, just that, that sort of expression of nature that seems to know what it's doing. You know, it's like has a plan that has been to some degree borne out through many, 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 many twists and turns of evolution. So it has a plan that it follows pattern that it is trusting. Well, I remember another time, um, my dad grew up on a ranch in Montana, kind of a farm ranch and in Eastern Montana. We'd go visit a lot and I probably was a young adult or a teenager at the time and I was with my cousin and they wanted to bring one of the cows in to milk it so they could just have some milk on their own. And the way you do that is you drive out with a pickup and you grab one of the calves, you put it in the back of the pickup because the, you know, the rangeland is kind of long. I mean, it's big. So you just drive really slowly and the mother follows the pickup truck, you know, because she doesn't, she's going to stay close to her calf. And so I being the city kid, you know, maybe I was too young to drive the pickup. I can't remember, but I was in the back of the pickup holding the calf and uh, it's just a couple days old. And again, it was just that uh, I still have the flavor, both of the, the power of the, the calf and the beauty and the wonder and just the intelligence of that system, that natural system that we call a baby cow. And it was interesting how it would be totally submit and then maybe when I relaxed too much it thought it w that was its chance you know and then it would really struggle for a few seconds exhaust itself and then submit again and uh, I just bring it up because it's relatively easy for us I don't know if you brought to mind your own maybe holding a newborn baby or being with a, a body near the time of death and becomes a little bit like an infant, sometimes bodies near the time of death. But it's relatively easy, I think, for us in some situations to enter this space of awe, more open, um, a mind free of concepts, a little bit more in the mystery a little bit more naturally open and present, not projecting so much onto the experience. But what's interesting is we don't seem to have that relationship with our own body, at least very often. I'm not sure it would be useful, but I used to do this more uh, in early years of my practice, sometimes just looking at the body and, and, and trying to have that mindfulness gaze 
Like, you know, initially when you look at the body, you know, you see mostly, especially if your clothes are off, the things you don't like or the things that your mind, our mind has been conditioned to be ashamed of or, you know, to think is like, what's that doing there? <laughs> and then, uh, and then if you just stick with it and kind of relax your gaze and, and relax the body and just be with the visual experience, you'll see too that the mind can, you know, with some training very quickly enter this space of being free of the usual projections, the usual constructions that the mind has about this body. And it's that in that space where a whole new relationship, a whole new way of relating to the sensations and just the activity of the body, the sensitivity of the body. And I think it's fair to say, it seems in studying the teachings of the Buddha, that uh, he said um, things that point that there's really no freedom to be found without the mind having a liberated, a beautiful, in a sense of free of the defilement, defilements, a relationship free of the defilements with the body. There's no freedom if we're embarrassed by the body. There's no freedom in the mind if the mind is uh, in denial, unwilling to feel into the body, into its depths, whatever is there, all the unfinished business, all the unresolved pain. When we think about all of the sensations, all the visceral activity that we are either too distracted or too afraid to feel throughout our lives. And it's like a debt, right? This, this unfelt experience, this, whatever the cumulative effect is, which would be alive in some fashion here and now, whatever the cumulative effect of not being grounded, not being open, not being kind, not being respectful of the activity of the body. This is from Wendell Berry, a naturalist and he talks about the wilderness and I think it's a nice, uh, it's a useful idea to hold for the body. The body is a, a wilderness, a natural place, a place that isn't civilized by our thinking mind, by our mind, that, that aspect of the mind that gets very comfortable with the meaning that it constructs, the stories that it tells. So the body in and of itself, this world of sensation is an untamed world. It's a wilderness, right? And it, it won't be tamed by the thinking mind. And talking about freedom, the Buddha said something like, no matter how the mind conceives, conceives it, constructs meaning around it, it will always be other than that. And I think in the same regard with the body, no matter the story we tell ourselves about the body, it will always be other. So here's Wendell Berry talking about the wilderness. This is from the unforeseen wilderness. Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown. And it is your first bond with the wilderness you're going into. (coughs) What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of essential loneliness, 
for nobody can discover the world for anyone else. It is only after we've, we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. And I like that line, what you are doing is exploring, you are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in the place. And then he talks about that essential loneliness. And there's something about when we open to the body, when we open to wilderness in a more simple and complete or profound way, that loneliness is, uh, you know, is that going beyond the constructed meaning that our mind is busy constructing. It's unfamiliar precisely because, you know, in opening to sensation, feeling the body as it is, trusting the sensations that are coming and going, we can't sort of do two things. The mind doesn't do two things at once. It can't be identified with its thoughts about the body, its interpretation, its story, and be opening, being intimate, aware of sensations in and of themselves. In a way, you know, we're facing this choice moment by moment, whether we're going to remain in the relatively safe and ultimately stressful and unsatisfying space of our thoughts about things, the thoughts we have about doing walking meditation or the thoughts we have about our yoga practice or our qigong practice or our sipping tea practice or, you know, staring at the sunset practice. Or we're going to enter more completely, open more completely to the experience in and of itself. Sensation, seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, the sensitivity of the body, these five physical senses. And in that space, of course, we're not afraid of the mind, the thinking mind's, you know, very natural habit of thinking or interpreting the experience. We're just practicing not orienting around that meaning or being confused by that meaning. Instead, we're tuning into this, and you can use this, see if this is useful for you as you practice in the days ahead, the sense of wildness or wilderness of the hearing, of the seeing, of the sensing, of sensation. Even in the chewing and tasting and swallowing when you're eating or the sipping of tea It's interesting how, you know, how addiction works and especially this basic addiction we all share, this addiction to interesting, pleasant, sometimes we need intensely pleasant sense experience. And because we've have, you know, not intentionally necessarily, but just through culture and habit and we have become more dependent on, more reliant on our thoughts about things, less willing, less able, less trusting of being with things, sensation in and of themselves, seeing, hearing in and of itself. And so appropriately we feel disconnected. Things feel flat because our thoughts about living a life are kind of, there's, they have a static dead feeling because it's different to like be living attached to the thought, I'm at IMS helping to teach a retreat. That thought is sort of 
dead or static. Being here, being in the visceral wilderness of the body, seeing, hearing, feeling of emotion swirling and moving, the dance of life, that doesn't feel dead or dry or numb or distant. But a lot of my ideas about being here can have that feeling. I'm sure you notice that, those of you who've done a lot of retreats. We tend to cycle through sort of being caught in some interpretation like nothing's happening on this retreat. And so that's, we sort of construct this world, nothing's happening on this retreat. We inhabit that so-called conceptual universe of the idea, the story that nothing's happening in my retreat. And in that world, (laughs) nothing's happening on the retreat except the repetition of that story, right? And so it becomes very, very much self-fulfilling. It actually starts to feel like nothing's happening, that it feel alienated, feel like we're missing the point, which just can promote more of that sort of thought. Where did I go wrong? How did I get off? Instead of doing the one thing that can help, you know, beginning again. And it's often not so pleasant to begin again, to come back to the lived experience of the body. Because one of the first things we tend to, the mind tends to notice, open to, is the cumulative effect of not being aware of the body, not being open to the body. It's a lot of work to be disconnected. And so every moment of being lost in thought, let's say, means the mind is laying down a layer of tension or pain in the body, unfelt, but it has sort of a karmic effect. So when we've been in a drama, lost in thought for a while, you know, in the middle of a sit, and then we come back, and on the one hand, it, it, especially if you've been practicing for a while, it feels like I'm a real wave of gratitude to have sort of returned to some semblance of sanity to be in the moment but it can also be very unpleasant, a sort of karmic fruit of having been working the mind because of habit, having been working really hard at maintaining the bubble of whatever that drama was that, you know, lost in thought, whatever that activity was. So we can reflect on the kind of stories, you know, that we have about the body. I mean, one basic reflection is just to ask yourself, am I living, going through the retreat with this idea that the body is here to make me happy? Like it's its job, my body's job is to provide a comfortable experience, to provide sense pleasure. And certainly we have that idea at times. You know, it's sort of the vehicle through which we get our fix, our pleasant fixes, whatever it might be, lying down at night at the end of the day, right? Or eating food when we're hungry or feeling sunshine when we're cold, or a cool breeze when we're warm. A lot of times, you know, (laughs) just observing our movements, that endless, almost endless pursuit to be comfortable, because that's the job of the body, to provide comfort. And then, of course, if we have that idea, then we inevitably we'll feel betrayed. Because even if we do find some comfort, it doesn't last for long. 
And then after enough of that, of seeking, you know, expecting the body to provide comfort, pleasure, eventually being betrayed, we can, another view can arise in the mind, another fixed view, which is the body's my enemy. You know, it's here to torment me. It's my cross that I have to bear. Or the, what's that phrase about uh, ball and chain, right? We have to drag along with us, you know. Oh, to be an angelic being with a body of light, you know, or whatever, to be, have an 18-year-old body again, or whatever we might think, to be back in shape, to gain 20 pounds or lose 20 pounds, or, you know, these ideas that we have where we, see the body as being synonymous with suffering. If only I didn't have a body. And what's interesting, what can really break our heart wide open is to notice, like to be aware enough of the body when there is that kind of mental activity and to see what gets laid down on the body. I mean, it's not so different than when we're around a dear friend or partner and we're sort of, you know, in a bad place and being really negative to them, what that lays down for them or when that happens to us, when somebody's dumping on us because of their own pain or their own confusion, right? We, we can feel what that feels like. Well, if that's often, or at least at times, the attitude we have of the body, it's like this is what I meant earlier when I said to, you know, to imagine the body as an innocent creature that unavoidably receives, right, it's tethered to the mind, the activity of the mind, the patterns of the mind. And so this wilderness, right, is the dumping ground. It receives what the mind lays down on it. And it doesn't go away. That unfelt pain or unexperienced pain in different ways accumulates. The debt will be paid one way or another. In a way, this is the teaching on karma. The question is, because you can, you know, we can get a little frightened by (laughs) when we think about how we've treated the body, you know, over these decades, we can get intimidated by the, you know, maybe the imagined debt that's there. The Buddha gave a nice simile to help us stick with the practice, but not get too overwhelmed by what we have to work with. He says, yeah, there, there may be this debt that has to be paid, this sort of natural movement of cause and effect. But what matters most is the mind that receives the karma. So that's why in the Buddhist teachings there's such an emphasis on right view, the wise way of relating to the body. It's actually not that helpful to relate to the body, to the more subtle pain in the body as if it's personal. In the same way that if a friend was trying to take if we're really sick or just going through a really difficult time and somebody, a dear friend is trying to take care of us, but they're totally taking our pain personally and freaking out about our difficult situation, they're not very helpful to have around. And it's not that different. The same thing with, you know, when you brought to mind fragile body of a puppy that you took care of or a injured bird that you picked up and tried to bring back to health or whatever, you know, you brought to mind earlier in the talk. What really helps is that kind of intimate 
but not entangled presence. Right? In fact, you can't have entanglement and intimacy. You can only have intimacy when there's equanimity, when there's non-fear and non-greed, non-aversion. So the Buddha says, uh, the simile that I wanted to mention that, you know, as we begin to work with the cumulative karma, the unfinished business of the body, the aging body, the sick body, the body that has held trauma and other sort of wounds from oppression or from whatever it might be that you've been sensitive to, that the body and mind has been sensitive to. So we do this work of including the body, opening to the body, being mindfully aware of the body with wisdom. And the Buddha gives a simile of if you take a cup of salt and you put it in a very small amount of water, like a, you know, a pint of water, you put a cup of salt in a pint of water, that water is going to be very salty. But if you put a cup of salt in Lake Superior, it's not going to notice it at all. And that's the simile he used, something like that, for if we open to the body as a very small, you know, narrow-minded, constricted view, taking things personally, then it's like we were joking about in the staff dining room right before the talk, you know, it's like opening the body and realize, I don't think I want to feel this. This is not an uncommon thought to move through the mind on the beginning of a nine-day retreat, even the first sit, you know, last night, maybe you remember that, you know, where there are a few moments of silence and your mind did the math. It's like nine more days, <laughs> this many hours, this many minutes, this many seconds of being with the body, being in the moment with the way it is. I don't think so. This doesn't seem like such a good idea right now. <laughs> and it's interesting how we sort of, I mean, hopefully, I mean, I do this, but I'm sure none of you do this, where the mind, I've even noticed my mind at times sort of thinking about things I can think about. So I don't have to be like things I can worry about, things I can plan about. You know, it's like, oh yeah, I haven't unpacked yet, where I'm gonna put that, I can figure that out. So basically, this deep mistrust, because of the force of habit, this deep mistrust and simply opening. And the body, more than anything, is that training ground. Steve mentioned in the guided instructions this morning how useful it is especially in the beginning of a retreat, how useful it can be in starting over to give the mind something to connect with, something that's relatively accessible, concrete. This is the training ground of the body. This is the training ground of sensation. It's not necessarily pleasant, as I've been saying, but it's available and it's real, right? Because our first task as somebody interested in following in the footsteps of the Buddha, our first task, right, to sort of express our devotion, our commitment to hearing the teachings, putting them into practice, is we have to stop thinking and thinking about the practice even, and we have to open to Dhamma, right? So the sort of basic move in practice is Buddha knowing Dhamma. The Buddha is that awakened quality, this capacity to be aware, waking up, being aware of the way it is, Dhamma or Dharma, things as they are. And the body is a gift. It's really our training ground, the Dharma, the Dhamma, the way it is, 
opening to sensation and also seeing and hearing can be very useful objects of experience to keep coming back to and to train ourselves to not be afraid of the ordinariness, the unpleasantness, and at times the pleasantness of what we're hearing and seeing and feeling as sensation. Because what we know about this world of body, the sensitivity of the body, is it's really defined by the pleasantness and the mind's interpretation of it, right? As, oh, this sight or this sound or this, these sensations are pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. This is from uh, the Dhammapada, this collection of verses. And this uh, version is translated by Ajahn Tanisaro. Simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although, although one's heard next to nothing, sees Dhamma through one's body is not heedless of Dhamma. This person is one who maintains the Dhamma, right? maintains the practice. And I was reading recently something Gil Fransdahl wrote of his time being in Thailand with uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, very well-known Thai meditation master and Buddhist monk. And uh, one instruction he received from Ajahn Buddhadasa was don't do anything that takes you out of your body. And again, it's not that, you know, the, the suffering that we're learning about and learning to be free from, that's all in the mind. But the using the body, the mind using the body to connect, it really provides that mirror for the mind, right? Because it's, of course, it's the mind that knows the body. It's the mind that relates to the body. We get to, to know the mind by being intimate with the body. As we often say in our practice, you know, sensations are being known. Knee pain is being known. Hearing is being known. Seeing is being known. So we're acknowledging that relationship, that very dynamic, that essential relationship between the mind knowing the body. I mean, the mind also can know the mind. But especially beginning, in the beginning, and uh, it can take you all the way. Because as you, like I said, as you know the body more and more intimately, you're really knowing the mind that's knowing the body. It's like understanding the body in its subtlety. You can't really be intimate with the body, really understand the nature of the body without understanding the nature of the mind. In the end, we understand the underlying nature by just being intimate with the way it is. In the end, these, some of these distinctions are less important, like the object that's being known is less important than the relationship itself, the changing nature of the mind that's relating, the impersonal nature, the unsatisfactory nature. You'll be hearing more about this as the days go by in the retreat. Once the Buddha was up late at night doing his walking practice and a radiant being came down to ask some questions and was interested, very sincerely interested in understanding after many lifetimes of practice, it seems, seeking for release from the cycles of suffering. This person, this being wanted to understand how does one find the place 
of being free from the cycles of suffering, having traveled, having looked here and there. And the Buddha responded. He said, I'll tell you, friend, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach a far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering, stress, without reaching the end of the cosmos. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body, with its perceptions, intellect, that I declare that there is the cosmos, the world, or sensuality, you could say, the origination of the world, the cessation of this world of suffering, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of this, these cycles of suffering. So there's something uh, reassuring, I think, for me at least, in this teaching, that it, the work that we have to do, it doesn't require us being someplace else. That what we need is here, and it's just a matter of learning how to open, or learning how to relate, or learning how to be, learning how to recognize what's here. And it doesn't matter how many times we fail, because what we need to take the next step on the path is already here, right? We have this experience of the body. And the, the beginning is really this uh, willingness to open to the body in and of itself, which I think has a lot to do with humility, of going beyond this arrogant certainty. I mean, it's so compelling, the, some version of the thought, I already know what the body feels like. Why do I need to feel the breath coming in? Or why do I need to open to the experience of the body sitting? I know that experience. Have you had some version of that notion in the mind? It's like the mind is very much, the thinking mind is very much interested in going to its thought, to what it thinks or conceives of as freedom or release, awakening, enlightenment. But somehow, arrogantly, thinks that it doesn't involve opening. This is probably as important of uh, edge of my practice over the last couple decades as any is the growing, deepening appreciation of the messiness and the uncertainty, the parts of my lived experience that in the past, in the early years of my practice, I would have interpreted as in the way of my practice something I need to get beyond. You know, I need to be in that perfect retreat place with that perfect teacher, with that perfect mind, perfect samadhi, concentration, no defilements, no hindrances, no dullness, no restlessness, no knee pain, no back pain, nobody fidgeting around me, You know, not too much saliva in my mouth. (laughs) No, where I'll have to swallow. I mean, it's amazing how these things, or a little food between two of our teeth, or like, I remember Joseph once, Joseph Goldstein, giving instructions about working with the hindrances, saying something like, don't believe the thought that I can't practice until this goes away. Because that is such a compelling thought. Yeah, when I finally, you know, get the right bench or the right cushion or find the right place in the hall or... We keep putting it off. We keep assuming that the experience of embodiment is in the way of taking the next step on the path. Instead of 
understanding that the experience of embodiment is the next step, recognizing it, acknowledging it, relaxing with it, trusting it, letting it have its effect, right? Letting it in. Even if what happens is some reaction, we'll learn something, right? We'll learn something about the nature of the mind and body, that dance, that relationship between the knowing mind and the experience of the body. But if we spend our time running from the present moment, not only will it be stressful, but we won't learn anything. Because, well, you know, it's some expression of doubt to somehow this arrogant sense that I can't practice now because the conditions aren't right. And how convinced we are that, that even though we are so, we, we can be so critical about our capacity to practice, but in this regard, I'm certain. <laughs> we have total confidence in this perception that I can't practice in this moment. But we can have doubt about everything else. It's really when we kind of bring this to light, it's really nice to know that I don't know much, but I know it has something to do with opening, connecting with what's here and now, right? And that movement of opening, connecting with what's here and now, it doesn't need to be perfect. Doesn't need to be clean. Doesn't need to look like we read in the book. It can actually be whatever it's going to be. The opening, the relaxing, the trusting, the having some semblance of kindness. And again, this is why these images can be really potent that I mentioned earlier on in the talk, you know, if we remember those moments when we met a fragile, innocent little creature, you know, we're willing to be confused, be vulnerable, wanting to help and not knowing that we don't know how to help. I'm sure you've had that feeling when you run across, we have a kind of uh, killing machine in our house these days, taking in a cat that we found um, starving near Common Ground, the place I teach in Minneapolis. We have a little retreat property, just a, it's kind of a retreat farm actually. But anyway, I was practicing out there and there was a cat that evidently had gotten kicked out from some farm in the area, a young cat. and really hungry and getting beat up by the other cats from the farms nearby. So we took it in, but it just so happens to be very good at catching in Minneapolis in the city now, catching all the chipmunks and baby rabbits. And and so every once in a while we catch it before it's killed the animal. And there we have these fragile creatures that are mold, sometimes can't move, sometimes can get away. But it, we learn a lot, um, my wife and I, we learn a lot about how not to close down. And I think it really helps in just relating to the body, how learning how to meet the body as it is, to meet the sensitivity of the body as it is. So when it's really beautiful and pleasant or really painful, or when we feel very confused, we don't know, even how to take care of the body. But no matter how it is, we're less likely to assume that distancing is the way forward. It's like this, we should all now, as you know, people on the path, we should be developing this deep suspicion that distancing ever makes sense. I mean, sometimes We need to do touch and go when things are really painful, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain, or sometimes we skillfully orbit 
It's like we sort of know we're in the vicinity of some pain. Because if we just go right to what is really difficult, we can be really exhausted after a while. And it can be a very useful skill to know where it is, to know that it's, in a sense, our responsibility, but not now. And this is just an act of compassion to know that, honey, I know you're there. I know it's my part of my practice to be aware, to remember, but not now. Knowing that you're there, now I'm going to bring my attention here. And I'm going to open to hearing or I'm going to do some walking practice. And it's not so much that we suppress the pain or the difficult bodily experience. It's more that we're just saying yes, opening. In fact, you can even ask yourself this question. What is it here and now in the experience of the body in the experience of the present moment? What is it that's here and now that the heart, that the mind is willing to be intimate with, willing to connect with, sustain with, open to, willing to relax with, so that we regain the stability of mind, the freshness, the confidence and awareness, so that we can, at the right time, return to whatever might appear more predominant, asking for attention. Because a lot of times, boy, I learned this the hard way. I'm sure many of you have learned this the hard way too, where we keep returning over and over again to the pain. And then eventually we begin to look for the pain. It's like almost we feel we're not a practitioner unless we're going right. And then it's like, at times I noticed I'm even disappointed if I don't find it. Or I get confused, like not knowing how to practice when there isn't pain in the body or difficulty in the body. So it's really important that we don't, in our practice, our practice never gets in that kind of fixed groove where we're basically following our thought about what our practice should be instead of this more dynamic where we're, we're taking, we're, in a way, our responsibility isn't so much to the object of our experience, but our responsibility is much more about the way the mind is relating to experience, to the present moment. And to keep that relationship healthy, beautiful, stable, like the way the mind, the knowing mind is relating, that's really what we care about. Is the heart, is the mind willing to be intimate, willing to relate, willing to know in a way that's in balance, in a way that has kindness, in a way that's fresh and alert and interested, curious? And if it's not, is there a way to transform the way the mind is relating with the object that's predominant? Or do I need to turn the attention to another present moment object where the mind can have a healthy, balanced relationship? Because it doesn't really matter what object we're aware of, right? So it's not like we get special points if you're turning to what's difficult over and over again. In a sense, you get points. You get points when you learn something, when the mind learns something about how to be, how to sustain this balanced, healthy, kind, alert, present moment awareness, right? Because that's what builds the momentum in the practice. And so this, you know, this wilderness we call the body of seeing and hearing sensing, sensation, smelling and tasting, but you know, often what's predominant are the sensations in the body. So this wilderness of the body, there's many objects 
in the moment. Some might actually be pleasant. And that can be really good medicine to, on purpose, notice what's pleasant in the experience of the body. It's like there may be some unpleasant sensations now, but there may be some nice sensations. Like I'm feeling a little bit of breeze. I'm not sure, maybe from one of the vents, that cool breeze feels nice. You know, but there's pain in my knee. And so it's always interesting, like, the habits the mind has about what it thinks it should be paying attention to. And to let this be a more uh, alive choosing, let wisdom do the work. What object of experience would be skillful to open to, to be intimate with now? What experience here and now would allow the mind to be relating in a beautiful way or would allow the mind to develop qualities that are good to develop, right? Because sometimes it's really good to develop the quality of steadfastness and fearlessness, but sometimes it's really good to develop the quality of appreciation and gladness, right? Appreciating what's pleasant or the quality of relaxation. So different aspects of the experience of embodiment will be good for different qualities that you might want to develop. And so if we see that the wilderness of the body, this experience of embodiment, is really the place where we develop the way of relating, really learn about, learn the difference between skillful and less skillful ways of relating because there will be lots of moments during the day where we're relating to the experience of embodiment, you know, with distraction, disconnection, irritation, with greed, denial. And we can learn from those moments, like basically learning that that way of relating doesn't help, right? It has another layer of pain, tightens things up, entangles the mind. And in other moments, relating skillfully, we see a little bit more clearly, with a little bit more confidence, this is the way. This is the way the Buddha taught. Like the Buddha says, the way, like every moment of mindfulness, mindful awareness that's in balance, that has some continuity, has the flavor of freedom, has the flavor of release, this deep, you could say spiritual healing. So let me just end by sharing some uh, words of the Buddha here. Whoever pervades the great ocean with one's awareness encompasses whatever rivulets flow down into the ocean. In the same way, whoever develops and pursues mindfulness immersed in the body encompasses whatever skillful qualities are on the side of clear knowing. When one thing is practiced and pursued, the body is calm, the mind is calm, thinking and evaluating are stilled, and all qualities on the side of clear knowing go to the culmination of their development. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. When one thing is practiced and pursued, ignorance is abandoned, clear knowing arises, the conceit I am is abandoned, latent tendencies are uprooted, fetters are abandoned. Which one thing? Mindfulness immersed in the body. Those who do not taste mindfulness of the body do not taste the deathless. Those who taste mindfulness of the body taste the deathless. Some of you know this is the synonym for release or the unbinding of the heart or Nibbana, the word deathless. And the Buddha ends by saying, those who are heedless of mindfulness of the body or heedless of the deathless, those who comprehend mindfulness of the body comprehend the deathless. 
So let's just sit for a few seconds and let go of the words. We have time for walking practice now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.